First, though, talking a little bit more about the crime spree that Vancouver police released, talking about the crimes they responded to just in Gastown this past weekend. An incredible, and not in a good way, amount of vandalism, of theft, of a of attacks on other people, of injuries. We wanted to talk about the repeat offenders, though, and the fact that some businesses are being hit over and over. William Donnellan is joining us on the line now, the owner of Donnellan's Irish Pub and Smith's Bar and Lounge in Gastown. Thank you so much for making some time with us. Hi, Jill. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining the program. Wanted to ask you, having a business or businesses in Gastown, what has it been like? It's been very tough, to be honest. Um, you know, the, the VPD, the business owners, uh, our staff, residents, everybody is very concerned. Uh, and it doesn't seem to be getting any better. You can see in the past week what has happened. And in, in my opinion, it's getting worse, if anything. Have you had vandalism or issues at your establishments? We have, yes. Uh, it's kind of a, an ongoing thing. And, you know, there's every morning you come to to open up your business, you're concerned, you know, are, is, are my windows going to be broken? Uh, will there be syringes stuck into my locks? Um, you know, will my patio furniture be there? There's, it, it, it's just one thing after another. And have those things, those specific things happened to, to you or at your, the places that you own? Oh, yes, they have, yeah, numerous times and, and uh, many more horrific things as well. What do you do then when, when you arrive at work and there have been, say, tampering with the locks or you arrive and the windows are smashed? Well, we, we're fortunate enough that we have a maintenance crew. We also have a construction division, so we can call our maintenance crew to help out. But a lot of the small businesses in the area, they don't have that facility or that, that service, I should say. So um, I feel very sorry for them. But it's, it's additional cost that we can't afford to bear uh, during these very tough times. Uh, police yesterday talked about some of the the factors that might be leading to this and talked about the fact there aren't thousands of tourists that have been in town for the cruise ships, being that there have been no cruise ships coming in, that uh, the the area itself of Gastown isn't as populated, there aren't people around, there aren't eyes around. Uh, have you noticed that? And, and do you think that is one of the reasons that it seems that during the pandemic that things have gotten so much worse? Yes, Jill, I'm sure that's definitely one of the reasons. You know, uh, it's it's quite sad, really. Gastown uh, is renowned, you know, for tourism. And it's uh, in recent times, it was voted one of the, the best neighborhoods in the world. You know, and right now it's it's almost an unsafe area for uh, tourists to go. And I'm concerned that when the tourists come back, um, you know, will they come to Gastown? Will they come and support our businesses? Are they safe? And do you think they will be? I hope so. Uh you know, the VPD are doing their very best. I, I personally think that the courts need to do a little bit more. I have uh, a neighbour that lives uh, next door to me in South Falls Creek, where I live, and uh, he told me the other day, he works for the law enforcement, and he told me recently that he spent half of his day helping out a, a guy who unfortunately had mental health issues, and that's one of our biggest problems, and I think that's what we really need to address here. But uh, helping the guy, you know, brought him into... A facility and spend a lot of time with him and by the time uh, my neighbor got out and, and jumped into his vehicle uh, his police car and left uh, the guy was walking out the gate uh, alongside him you know so um it's it's very sad really and and police are wasting a lot of time uh trying to help these people and uh you know they 
there's about 20% of the people I would uh, guesstimate doing 80% of the crime, you know, and uh, we really need to, to do more, I think, and the courts need to do more to, um, to help with that. Have you seen an increase then as well, people that, that it's pretty clear that there are mental health issues, so people in the Gastown area? Oh, yes, for sure. Like, uh, you know, I've been here, we took over this place about a year ago and renovated it and uh, I'm down here all the time now in Gastown. Gastown, I'm, I'm actually here at the moment. And, um, you know, I can, I, I recognize the people. I know most of them by their names and uh, they have serious mental health uh, problems. You know, it's not necessarily their fault they just need help uh, they have nowhere to go um, a lot of the time they're running up and down the, the streets screaming and shouting and, and, and cutting themselves and harping themselves and it's, it's, it's extremely sad and, and when you talk about the, the 20, it's 20% that are doing 80% of the crimes of that is it mainly people with mental health issues or are there others that you observe or see that are criminals that are taking advantage of say a, a dark store taking advantage of the fact that there aren't people around and that they can get away with it oh there's definitely uh, others lawbreakers there who are um, you know repeat offenders and those are the culprits who are uh, causing most of the issues in the area, for sure. Uh, police announced yesterday that they arrest, or that a 37-year-old man was arrested. Uh, he was charged with one count of break and enter. This was in relation to an incident that took place on Sunday. Uh, so does it come a, as any comfort to you that uh, an arrest was made in that case? It does, yes. No, as I said, the police, I think, are, are doing a great job. Uh, I came here this morning to uh, meet some of our trades here who are doing some work in our washrooms on the floors, and uh, there was a guy running up and down the street screaming and shouting and kind of being aggressive towards some people on their way walking to work in the morning. And uh, the police came pretty quickly and uh, they came over and talked to me, asked me if I was the one who called the police. I said no. Um, and they said thank you. And they went and they addressed the matter and dealt with it. So I really do think the VPD are doing the very best they can. Um, but I think they're, they're fighting a losing battle here. They need help. They need support. And again, you mean mental health, uh, mental health addiction support that type of thing? Yes, yes. Uh, I think we've all heard about the uh, the institution that was closed down, and you know all these thousands of people that went out on the street, and that now the support, and the help is just not there for them. And uh, I think we we really need to address that. And that's uh, until we do that, I think these issues are going to uh, be ongoing. And when we talk about the, the crime rate as well, and again, looking at this was just a snapshot of one weekend in Gastown, what have businesses, uh, yours or, or other businesses that you know in the area, have they upped security? What have they done to try and keep their businesses safe and to stay in business? Well, if you take a walk down through Gastown, Jill, it's it's incredible to see how many people have spent the money uh, to put in these uh, security gates. You know, every second storefront has them now, and... Uh, I know the city don't like to see them, but if you don't have them, there's a good chance you could come in some morning and your windows will be smashed and your products will be stolen or your place will be destroyed. So uh, stuff like that. And I know to put in uh, a regular security fence in your storefront, uh, about 20 foot long, could cost $5,000. And these are additional costs that small business owners have to take on. And it's, it's, it's a very tough time in the hospitality industry, in particular in a lot of industries right now. And... Uh, this is, it's just uh, not sustainable. 
All right. Well, William Donnellan, I thank you so much for taking the time to talk to talk with us today. Uh, we'll talk to you again soon, I'm sure. But thanks again. Appreciate it very much. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Jill. Thanks for being with us. Well, as you may have heard on the news, we got this number yesterday. BC has issued three tickets for companies breaking vaccine card rules, talking mainly about restaurants where the most or the bulk of the people are using their vaccination certificates or passports, so whatever you want to call it. So let's bring in Ian Tostenson, once again, president and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Association. Good afternoon to you. Hi, Jill. How are you doing? Very well. How about you? Not bad. Not bad. Are you surprised at all by that number that three tickets have been issued? Well, I'm I'm a little surprised, but I'll be even more surprised and angry if that's the numbers by the time we get to next this time next week. I mean, we talked to government about a bit of a grace period orientation. You know, we and other industry associations have been trying to coach businesses, you know, to understand how to do this. There's a lot of unanswered questions. And but now we clearly, you know, we know about maybe 50 to 100 restaurants that are clearly in violation intentionally, not you are making mistakes or we're not doing it. We have that. We get some people ready to say the restaurant didn't really ask me the right way or all those different nuances. But, you know, clearly there's, there's restaurants that are offside. So three fines have been levied. And I sort of sense from the minister's body language last night that I think there'll be more to come pretty quickly. Uh, He did say, so he was asked why the number was so low and uh, Mike Farnworth, the minister, said that at this point the province is continuing to focus on education over enforcement. So did you get the idea from that 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 will switch? Yeah, and we've written um, government last night. Interesting. Um, we've written, well, we've written the government, but we also had a meeting this morning and uh, was a group in Cranbrook, restaurants and, and um, uh, gyms. And the fitness industry is having the same problem that we are, is that they've got a number of gyms throughout the province that are just in non-compliance and they're frustrated as well because, you know, time is, the carrot thing didn't work. It's now time to start enforcement. And, you know, we just kind of, you know, I think, Remember that we're in a pandemic. We're doing this to keep our industry open. We're, we're doing this to give the confidence back to our patrons. And, it, and it's just <sighs> disgusting. I don't know what the word is that some businesses would just simply decide to opt out for selfish reasons or philosophical reasons when 99% of the industry is working hard. They've lost some revenue. Their costs have gone up. Um, you'll see uh, um, some results of a poll that, that's coming out tomorrow that's showing about 60% of restaurants are break-even or losing money still. And to put this kind of uh, uneven playing field uh, is not fair to the restaurants that are doing it right. It's, it's, not a, it's not a level playing field. It has to become level. And because even having, I've gone to a few restaurants and, and for the most part, everyone has, has done it correctly. I've had, I think, one or two that didn't actually scan the passport, but did check the passport, the vaccine, looked at it and checked my ID to make sure that the name was the same. Um, yeah. And it's easy. Even I went to a place yesterday and they were telling people, because there was, remember, there was all that concern, oh, there's going to be long lineups and it's just going to be so onerous. Uh, they were telling everybody, grab a seat, have your passport out and ready, which I would hope if somebody doesn't have it, they're not going to go in and say, it down, but it seemed to be working just fine. So even if there are restaurants that saying it's that are saying it's too onerous or it's uh, it's uh, you know scaring clients away, scaring business away, that doesn't seem like a very legitimate excuse. 
No, it doesn't. And I think it's and I think it's um, it's not in the spirit of integrity. It's not uh, doesn't represent industry, the professionalism of it. Uh, what we try to do as an industry goes beyond just serving food. I mean, we've got a great responsibility in the public at large to uh, to do things, you know, whether it's environmental or with our staff or, you know, now with the pandemic. Interesting, uh, Jill, um, just point out, um, restaurants do not have to use the scan. They can just do a visual check, which is fine, and that makes it a bit easier. And they can do the check either at the door or at the table, certainly before any service happens. But So there's some flexibility in that. We're seeing the same thing that you are uh, saying. It's gone really well, and people like it. People are feeling safe. I mean, we do get a lot of people saying, finally, I can go to a restaurant again. I feel really safe. And But they get a bit confused because, you know, there'll be a restaurant or a bar down the street that's not doing it, and there's a restaurant or a bar uh, in, the, in in different municipalities that are doing it. And those ones are getting harassed by, well, what do you mean? You know, they're not doing it. You should do it too. So we got to step up here and get, get it level. These people have to decide to be part of the solution or they should just close their doors and come back at another time when we don't have a pandemic. Uh, interesting when you say that. So they don't have to scan. So what was the whole point with with getting the QR code and making sure that restaurants could get the app to do the scanning? Um, well, the QR code, you know, is is a visual because it has your name on it, and then you match that with ID. So that's sufficient. Um, the QR code is pretty characteristic when it's on your phone. So there's a lot of security built into that. So it's very difficult to, to reproduce that. So you know, you can do the scan. A lot of actually, a lot of restaurants are doing the scan but they don't have to do the scan. It's just an added little sense of security. Okay. I, I, I'm, I'm glad you clarified that because I've been hearing from people as well as customers saying they were quite concerned that they didn't scan it, that, that they just checked it, just looked at it, and concerned that that could open it up, that somebody might go to the work of creating a fake card on your phone or a fake picture that if you did scan it, it wouldn't go anywhere, and concerned there's not that extra level of, of due diligence. Yeah, and, and I think that the the, the uh, motivation for someone to go and produce a card just to get into a restaurant, a bunch of vaccinated people, is pretty low. And, um, you know, we, we've had threats of people saying, we're going to go and do this and do that. It's not happening. I think that people realize that, you know, if they don't have it and they're trying to do some fraudulent thing, it's not going to work out well for them. They can be fined. And um, so, no, so far so good. We haven't had any, any issues with that at all. Um We've had issues of people throwing insults and not happy. Um, I believe that's an organized minority group of people. My colleague um, with Abel, Jeff, uh, got an email today, which is almost identical to the good kind of using the same words, just caustic language uh, thrown at us. Uh, and I think it's the same group that sort of circulates the stuff around and around. So I don't get bored. I mean, and I also do you know my personal thought, Jill. I do not think this is going to end in January, and that's not inside baseball. That just, you know, we're almost in November for intense purposes here. And to think that, you know, by January things are going to change, I think we're going to be in the vaccination passport for longer than we think. And I think that's a good thing. I think it's just going to be part of the routine, just like it is if we ask for ID for people when they're drinking. It just becomes so important to make sure that we do our part 
to help British Columbia get rid of this pandemic. It's getting really boring. <laughs> yeah, that's one word for it, for sure. Yeah. I think uh, the person that emailed you also likes to email uh, media people as well. So you're right. Maybe they, they will stop doing that. Um, I, I like Your point, though, that this will probably be past January. I mean, wasn't isn't kind of the point of this is to encourage people who haven't been vaccinated to get vaccinated. Do you see it kind of then continuing as a status quo? Yeah, I do. I, I think that we'll still be struggling a little bit with people getting vaccinated. And that, that's right. I mean, you're, that's a very good point, Jill, is that there are sort of two points to this. is that the, the, restaurant in, the restaurants can stay open, bars and stuff, but we can stay open by doing the vaccination passports. So the people that aren't complying, I kind of chuckle because the only reason they're open is because 99% of the industry is doing the right thing. And then, of course, it's the motivation to get people vaccinated. My, my brother is a a pharmacist and he attends a few vaccination clinics and people are coming in now and saying, you know what, I don't really want to do this, but I have to do it. So I want to go to a restaurant. I want to go to a gym. So that's working. And I think as long as we have the numbers where they are, um, I think it's going to take us a few months to continue to keep the pressure on. I just don't want us to just take the pressure off and then we get back into having problems. I just run it a little bit longer. I don't think that anybody has any problems with this. And it's just going to become part of what we do uh, until the pandemic, I think, is out. We'll see. Dr. Henry will make that call. But we're not, uh, as an industry at all, it's the first thing we want to do is ask you for that, Joe, when you come to our restaurants. But it's an important part of it. And if we have to do that to stay open for a long, long time, uh, then so be it. That's what we have to do. And Ian, just to, to, to recap what you had said, so 50 to 100 restaurants, you think, within the industry right now that are, that are just openly defying the rules and not checking, not requiring vaccine certificates. That, that's out of how many restaurants? Uh, 13,000. So it's a small part, but it's very visible. And it's a bit more prevalent in the interior and in the north. And in, so the number of restaurants and bars and lounges and stuff that aren't complying is directly correlated to the vaccination rates. So we uh, did a thing in Port St. John last week, and they've got, you know, just, you know, less than 60% people vaccinated. And they have a lot of restaurants that are just going, you know what? We actually have a restaurant there as a tip jar that says this is our defense fund because we are not going to ask you for a passport. Hmm. And if we get fined, you can put some money in the tip jar and help us pay our fines. I mean, that kind of stuff is going on, which is crazy. So um, it's a small minority, but it's, you know, it's a very visible minority. And when they do it, now there's a, there's a place in Penticton. Uh, I, I shout out to these guys. I love the Tattoo Brewing Brewery. And they came out really hard about, yeah, we're not taking the passport. We're doing this and that and freedoms and liberties. And they actually changed last week. And they apologized that we, did the, we made the wrong decision, that we are going to do this. We think it's important for the community. And boy, I tell you, you know, you want to talk about a business that got such overwhelming compliments by reversing course and doing the right thing. So we hope that more businesses take that approach. And, and, and I know it's hard. I mean, if some businesses are going, if I don't do that, if I take the vaccine passport, I potentially lose my business. But if we're all on a level playing field, that's probably not going to be the case. All right. Let's leave it there for today. Ian, thanks so much for joining us again. Thanks, Jill. Take care of yourself.
Thanks for being with us. Just a reminder, coming up later this hour, we will take you live to, I believe it's happening in Victoria. For our purposes, it doesn't really matter. It is today's news conference with Dr. Bonnie Henry and Health Minister Adrian Dix. They will be holding that news conference at 1.30. We're going to carry it live on this program. So that's coming up at 1.30, the very latest when it comes to COVID-19 in this province. Also happening today at Vancouver City Council, they are talking about the parking permit program. We're keeping tabs on that as well, and we'll let you know if anything changes there. Still a lot of calls to the buzz line on that topic that we have yet to get to. Right now, though, we are shifting focus, taking a look at a two-day hearing that is happening in the highest court, the Supreme Court of Canada. This case is looking to review protections for sexual assault survivors who are in criminal trials. And there is the potential, depending on how the court decides in this case, that things that were brought in to protect people who are survivors of sexual assault, well, those protections could be lost. Joining me to talk more about this is Kate Feeney, the Director of Litigation and Co-Counsel with West Coast Leaf. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Can you talk a little bit more about the importance of this hearing, a two-day hearing, and just how significant it is when we come to uh, talking about how courts handle sexual assault cases? Yes, yeah, so these two cases concern um, rules which apply to evidence that's used in criminal sexual assault cases. So um, there's a long history of the complainant's private information being used against her in sexual assault um, trials to perhaps unfairly discredit her or um, humiliate her. And over time, Parliament has introduce new rules to put some limits on the use of that private information, including, for example, rape shield laws, which place uh, restrictions on the use of um, sexual history evidence. Um, But the most recent rules are about um, when the accused person can use private records um, that are in the accused person's possession, because generally the accused person doesn't have to um, disclose those records to... uh, the prosecutor. Um, so that actually creates situations where they could surprise complainants during cross-examination with her own private records, such as a diary that was in the hands of the accused as the accused is uh, the complainant's father. Hmm. So it would be something then that the accused, I think people might think or jump to the conclusion that the prosecutor would be, would know what, what information or would know what was coming in the trial. But I guess what you're saying is that there are these surprises, and, and that can be the first time they're seeing this or hearing of this is during the trial? Yes, because the accused has the, the right to silence, and they don't have an obligation to disclose the materials that are in their possession. So it could be during the complainant's cross-examination um, when she's surprised by um, a really private record, such as a diary or, or perhaps health records, um, you know, records of, of a sensitive nature. So... Um, you know, these rules place restrictions on that. The new regime also allows complainants to participate in applications where the court determines when um, the, these types of records can be used. Um, so these appeals are about the constitutionality of that regime because it is, it is a change from before when the accused, um, you know, had that ability to surprise a complainant and perhaps impeach her during her cross-examination or um, with those materials. 
So as it stands now, then, is that still allowed? And this case is to to try and stop that? Or or what is the focus? The parliament in 2018 passed um, this new regime, which places restrictions on the accusability to um, use the complainant's private records. And that regime is now being challenged as unconstitutional. So the Supreme Court of Canada will decide whether to uphold the regime or strike it down. And what do you think would happen then, or, or what, what is the outcome if the Supreme Court of Canada was to strike this down? Um, what it means is that um, complainants will see a key protection being withdrawn from the criminal proceeding and a return to the days when their private information um, could be used to surprise them during cross-examination. And, you know, that can will just continue a long history um, of abusive tactics during sexual assault trials. So it could be something as well, I would imagine, that if this was struck down or if this was uh, allowed to go back, it could be a scenario where during a sexual assault trial, uh, perhaps the the woman or, or the 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 person, the accuser, um, her sexual history is brought up or, or something like that, trying to paint her or stereotype her as, as that, that, that being part of it? Well, there are separate rules that apply to sexual history evidence. So this regime would apply to um, private information that isn't um, information about the sexual history, but might also invoke myth-based reasoning. So for example, um, mental health records um, that the accused might have because um, he is uh, the complainant's counselor and abused a position of authority. Okay. Is it is part of the argument then as well whether or not this information should even be admissible or is it more about the fact that it shouldn't be used in a way that's kind of a surprise attack? Um, I would say both. So um, it's going to address the question of admissibility, but um, the court could also um, provide guidance about how the record would be used if it's determined that it um, should be admitted in a limited way. How do you think this will affect or potentially impact future cases in that when the change was made in 2018, uh, did it did it kind of help people in feeling better or more confident about coming forward, knowing that this wasn't going to happen during the trial? And, and could that be could that be taken away in that we go back to a place where people are, are more reluctant to come forward? I think that it will have um, a negative effect on reporting rates. Survivors learn about what's going on in the criminal justice system um, through a lot of ways, including through talking to um, victim support services and sexual assault support services. Um, and, uh, you know, the information is out there right now that there are protections um, in place that will um, limit the accusability to um, make unfair use of their private information. And, and they'll also learn when that's taken away. So, you know, it's already, um, you know, there's already a lot of issues um, in the criminal justice system when it comes to responding to sexual assault. We see a very low reporting rate and a even lower conviction rate. And um, so there's, there's already not much trust. And I think taking something away is, is just going to alienate complainants more from the criminal justice system.
And do you know when we've we've seen this happen in the past, when there have been these instances where personal information has been brought up and used as that kind of tactic to surprise uh, the person, is it then up to the justice or the person, whether it's a judge or a jury trial, to decide at that point whether it's it's okay that that will become part of the trial or to strike it down? Or what happens at that point? Well, under the regime, the accused person is supposed to bring an application before they even go down that path. Um, of course, sometimes it might be the trial judge who determines um, as an inquiry is starting that the regime applies or the Crown Council. I mean, there every single trial actor, I think, needs to contribute toward ensuring trial fairness and the proper application of the regime. Uh, this is a two-day hearing at the Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, when do you anticipate we might know what the ruling is on this or what the decision is? It's hard to say. It um, usually can take um, several months before a decision is issued. All right. Well, Kate, we'll leave it there for today, but a very interesting case, and I know a lot of people will be watching to see what happens here. Thank you so much for joining us to talk more about it. Thank you very much. Thanks for being with us. Well, tomorrow, parents especially, guardians, caregivers, are being encouraged to walk their children to school. It is International Walk to School Day. It's falling on Wednesday, October 6th. So what is this all about? And how many people in Canada and B.C. are already doing that? Let's bring in Fred Wittavine. He is the CEO of Children Believe. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me onto your show. Uh, tell me a little bit about, well, first of all, what your organization does and why this is an important day for you. Well, Children Believe is a Canadian charity working globally to empower children to dream fearlessly and stand up for what they believe in and be heard. We, we've been in existence for over 60 years. We work in Africa, Asia, Central South America, uh, working with uh, children in all those countries. And the importance of talking about or getting awareness out about walking to work. Well, we did the survey and there were some very interesting findings. Uh, You know, 72% of Canadian children have a safe way of getting to school. 43% of those are driven to school. 29% we found out have a safe walk or ride to school. But only 16% of parents actually occasionally walk their kids to school. And when you compare it, so, so for, for, for Canadian parents and caregivers, who, uh, it is relatively easy for our children to get to school. But that is such a different experience for children overseas. I have worked overseas for a long time. And if you can just imagine, you know, a child uh, walking on a narrow road where you have to share it with, with buses, trucks, cars, three-wheelers, motorcycles, bicycles, and animals of every size. And on top of that, the dust, the broken road, the uh, extreme temperatures, hot and cold, and often on the way, especially for girls experiencing bullying or even violence. So it's such a different experience. So we're encouraging Canadian uh, families to walk to school tomorrow and, and on that walk to be able to talk together about the, really the privilege we have of such an easy access to, to school. 
Uh, a lot of parents will hear that and, and will say, oh, I would love to walk my kids to school tomorrow, would love to be able to do that. But for whatever reasons, uh, life being busy, uh, distances perhaps wouldn't be able to. Is there another way to mark the day or, or at least, I guess, have that conversation? Well, you know, if they can't do it tomorrow, they can do it all, the entire month of October. And if they can't do that, we encourage them to visit uh, childrenbelieve.ca forward slash walk to school to learn more about the barriers for kids accessing school around the world and joining the conversation. You know, any way that parents and their and caregivers can participate in that conversation, I think would be a tremendous educational experience. And when you talk about the children around the world that are not in school, maybe the the obstacle being not having a safe way to get there, not being able to get there. Have you seen it change at all during the past few years or are there indications anywhere that it is getting better? Actually, as a result of COVID, it's gotten much, much worse. Over 260 million children around the world can't get an education. 86% of Canadian parents believe primary school sets up a child for success later in life. Just imagine that many children not having that same opportunity. Many families simply simply can't afford to send their kids to school because education is not free, or even if it is free, they can't afford all the associated fees. And of course, many families without means simply can't access digital learning, which is now a requirement because of COVID. Uh, do we still still see a big discrepancy as well if we're looking in countries around the world, uh, the difference between access to school for girls versus boys? I think it's a continuing challenge. Many countries have identified this as an area where they want to get better, but it's still a persistent issue that we have to keep working on together. And because of COVID, it's been a real setback for for girls. I would imagine, too, the pandemic hasn't helped in that so with people dealing with that. It's it's easy to not be thinking about other things or there might be, be issues or a cause like this that you'd been involved with in the past, but it's kind of a fallen fallen off the priority list. Well, actually, we did a, a survey actually earlier in the uh, last year. And one of the things we discovered during COVID is that Canadians are thinking about what's happening in other parts of the world. We're seeing in the news every day. And we've been quite surprised that that Canadians are extremely generous people and, and are looking for ways to get involved. And even in this uh, walk, uh, walk back, walk to school day, you know, one of the things we encourage parents to think about with their kids is how they can make a difference, like becoming a child sponsor. I sponsor two kids myself. And I just got a letter a couple of weeks ago. We, you know, through spon- a child, sponsoring a child, you actually can learn more about the experience of children overseas in a very direct way. Or if, if that's not possible, you know, something as simple as buying an education gift through gifts, our gifts through our gifts for good catalog, which I just did last week. It's so easy to do. So there are easy ways for Canadians to get involved. And one thing I've learned in the past year is Canadians have extraordinary generosity. They just need to know what they can do practically. And when you talk about becoming a child sponsor, what is that exactly? What does that involve? Well, you can go to the childrenbelieve.ca website and just look at how you can sponsor a child. We'll just walk you through all the steps. It's real simple. Uh, Have you had success in the past or or like you said as well with tomorrow being uh, International Walk to School Day? uh, Do you find people do make that effort and and get out there and, and, and have a conversation about it? Well, that's what we're going to find out. And my hope is that when uh, families participate, they will share their experience online uh, and using the hashtag the long walk or the walk to school.
school day and tag Children Believe. And I, I'm making a promise that I will read all the uh, uh, posts that families put online. And my hope is you might have me back on your show and I can share that with you. All right. So, so that, again, if people are participating and doing this, so the long walk, hashtag walk to school day, the other hashtag and tag your organization, Children Believe, and really get that conversation going. Yes, that's what we're hoping for. All right. Well, let's leave it there. And uh, I have a feeling there will be more people walking to school tomorrow than perhaps today. Fred, great to chat with you. Thank you so much for coming on the program. Thanks for having me on.